This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks your star trek books and comics show i'm one of your hosts dan gunther and with me as he is every week with bells on fresh from star wars celebration it's the wonderful bruce gibson yes i am back from star wars celebration and i will say this i had a brief star trek moment because I hung out with John Jackson Miller for a while and we did talk about his Star Trek Prey book and he had it with him. So he's going around Star Wars Celebration showing people <laughs> his Star Trek novel. He's like, well, you might like my other work, but what about this one? And so it was pretty fun. <laughs> that's a good way to get the entire 501st after you. I, I just got to say that's that's kind of dangerous. He did look a little scared. <laughs> Well, not only joining us, of course, is Bruce Gibson, but also joining us tonight is the wonderful Brandon Shea Once again, how's it going tonight? Oh, I'm doing much better. Um, you know, just so you guys know, we've already recorded this podcast and it was absolutely terrible. So I've actually had a time alarm come back and we're going to redo it. So it'll be better this time, I promise. I'm so sorry I messed up that last one. I I don't remember this. That. Yeah, no, you, be thankful that you don't. Oh, are you back-timing on me again? I back-timed, yeah, it was oh. a total time alarm. Well, I hope uh, I hope I was at least okay. Yeah, Bruce was terrible, though, too. Ooh, okay. well, at least I'm consistent. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know what this is all about, listen to the feature when it comes up. When it comes up. Read the book. Indeed. Why do you listen to the podcast if you don't read the book? <laughs> I met, I got a, you mentioned John Jackson Miller, just in case nobody's listened to the last episode of Melodic Treks that came out about two weeks ago, I actually had John Jackson Miller on and we talked about his short story in the new Planet of the Apes anthology that came out this January. And then we talked about the music for Escape from the Planet of the Apes, which is when his story takes place. Um, and if you haven't picked up that anthology, if you are an Apes fan, you have to run to the nearest bookstore or whatnot and pick up a copy of this book because there's, there's some really cool stories in this book. And I can't I can't promote it enough. So Planet of the Apes, it's called Tales from the Forbidden Zone. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, I'm totally jealous. Both of you guys get to talk to John Jackson Miller recently. So, man, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just totally left out of the loop here. Well, he needs to come out with a Star Trek book real soon so we can talk to him again. Here, here. Well, speaking of coming out with Star Trek books, uh, we've got a couple changes that I just recently noticed to the pocketbook schedule. Just thought I'd uh, let you guys be aware of them. 
So Voyager Architects of Infinity, that's the next Voyager novel from Kirsten Beyer. I have a feeling Matt in particular is going to be very sad about this news. That has been bumped from September to December. So that will be coming out at the end of the year now. And moving up to take its place is the next DS9 novel by David R. George III, and that's Original Sin, and that's going to be coming out September 26th. Now, we haven't really talked about it on the show, but I'm, I'm, I know a lot of our viewers, or sorry, our listeners, I should say, have noticed uh, a bit of an, an anomaly in the pocketbook schedule this year. It's kind of rare that this happens, but there are a couple months this year that have no book release. So right now, this next kind of uh, cycle of the book schedule, there's no book release coming out for the end of uh, April, the end of this month, which would be the May book. There's still currently no book coming out during, at the end of July for the August book. And again, no book coming out at the end of October. So we've got a few gaps in the schedule this year. What do you guys, uh, what do you guys think about that? I think Discovery has messed things up. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I was just going to say, I wonder if Discovery has anything to do with that. Like is in the list that you've got. Is David Mack's book listed in there at all? It actually isn't. It is still uh, listed as having no set release date. And yeah, totally. It was originally supposed to be coming out uh, as the May book, like coming out at the beginning of May. And of course, uh, when Discovery got pushed back, that's just kind of become an unknown at this time. So I think... Well, in my opinion, I mean, he's written the book. Just publish it. (laughs) No, because it's going to spoil things. (laughs) come on let's just get some discovery out there let's just do it yeah that would be pretty cool to have the book scoop the show but i don't think they're ever ever going to do that unfortunately (laughs) um yeah you you guys remember back in the day when there'd be a major motion picture release and the novelization would come out like a week before and you just totally be able to read the whole movie yes i feel they still do that yeah, not for Star Trek, though. <laughs> oh, no. Not for Star I Trek. I remember the day where there would be novelizations to a Star Trek movie, but now with Star Trek Beyond, we didn't get one. Yeah. No, we didn't. Very I'm still sad. bitter. End of an era. <laughs> didn't the Rogue One book come out, the novelization came out before the movie, didn't it? It came out the day of as an e-book and then a couple weeks later as a hard copy. What do I know? It's Star Wars. I don't pay attention to that stuff. <laughs> but you're right. Well, speaking of Star Wars, I remember when uh, episode one, The Phantom Menace came out, I was reading that the novelization on the plane on my way to the honeymoon, on my honeymoon. My wife and I sat on the plane reading the book together, and it was two weeks before the movie came out. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, I, I they don't do that anymore. Total end of an era, I guess. Well, we do have uh, some new titles that have been announced. I did mention DS9 Original Sin. Uh, This one looks really cool because we talked recently with David R. George III, and of course he wasn't able to tell us anything about this book. However, there have been some uh, descriptions that have shown up on the Simon & Schuster catalog and various places around the internet that this looks like this will be the first mission of the USS Robinson in the Gamma Quadrant. So those of you looking for some Captain Sisko love, hey, there we go. We've got it coming. Yay. I'm excited. I've been wanting to see this. I mean, I want to... I know he's captain of the USS Robinson, but there hasn't been a book dedicated to just that. And I was anxious to see something like this come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, definitely really excited to see that for sure. And that one's available for pre-order now. So that'll be coming, like I said, at the end of September. And then we actually, while we don't have a main novel coming out uh, as the November book, 
There is a new DS9 ebook coming in November, scheduled for November 13th. It's a new uh, novella by Paula M. Block and Terry J. Erdman, and this one's called I, the Constable. So I'm thinking Odo is probably going to play a pretty big role in this one. You know what's great about that is there's like, you know, some of those potboiler, you know, uh, dark movies and stuff like I, the Jury Mm -hmm. and... You know things like that, so that's pretty cool. I'm looking for that just based on that title. I'm totally looking for that because he was always borrowing those books from O'Brien, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking this is totally a take on the I the Jury title. Was that a Mickey Spillane novel? I, I should, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I should have looked that up. But yeah, that that's really cool. And those were the the books that he enjoyed reading. Of course, he had the what was the Kiss Me Deadly was another Mickey Spillane novel yep. that he read on the show so kind of cool well if they're calling it that too i the constable that's going to be a first person story like do we have any star trek books that are told in first person oh wow other than that's a good you know question. like other than the occasional maybe short story from uh strange new worlds or something like that mm-hmm. but you know like this would be a hundred page first first person narrative Huh, that's interesting. Well, any listeners out there, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But... Well, what about recently the autobiography of James T. Kirk? Wasn't that? Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. by definition, I guess, yep, that, that counts. But yeah, as it okay, comes yeah. to like the pocketbook line of books, I can't recall off the top of my head. It takes some time to think through that because there's like seven well, books. Come on, there's only like 800 Yeah, 800 books to think through. <laughs> I can't remember. I have to think about that one. Yeah, we have an encyclopedic knowledge of all of them, right? Wasn't well. I can't think of any, and I'm, I was don't the know, but, um yeah. uh gosh the book Garrick was that one um oh um Stitch in Stitch Time, Time was that yeah. in first person I can't remember I don't think it was like he had the letters that were kind of interspersed into it yeah. right the letters but I think the novel portion wasn't first person. It's been a while since I've read it. He has those letters, but yeah, this is in first person. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I got it. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, good job. Wow. Good call. Yeah, so confirmation stitch in time written in the first person from Garrett's perspective. That's cool. I get to keep my Star Trek novel card. (laughs) (laughs) Dan and I's are revoked. Yeah, yeah. I I, I read that, but it was so long ago. It was, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we do have one last bit of news before we get to actually a comic that we're going to be reviewing. But first, uh, there was new cover art revealed recently, and this is for the next Deep Space Nine novel by Una McCormick. Man, this is a Deep Space Nine year. Holy. We Have, have we had a Four. year recently with this many DS9 releases? That's crazy. It's been a while. I mean, I think there may have been a year where we've had some, but because um, we had that well, series, the, the post Mission Gamma, yeah, Mission Gamma, mm, the four right. book series. That was four months in a row. Yeah, yeah that's been. That, I mean, that's over ten years na- ago now. Yeah, yeah. But what's crazy. funny about this cover? It has Garrick on it, and we just were talking about him. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So yeah, this is Enigma Tales, uh, another in I guess Una McCormick's kind of series of Cardassian novel titled books. So we had The Neverending Sacrifice, uh, The Crimson Shadow, and now we've got Enigma Tales. So really getting into the Cardassian literary references here. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's a pretty cool cover. I mean, a bit of an obvious Photoshop job, but we've got the uh, Cardassian capital city skyline at dusk with Garrick superimposed over top of it. I don't know, what do you think? Does this one get your seal of approval? 
Well, it's got the name Una McCormick on it, so yes. <laughs> You're here. But, uh, you know, like, I, I really, I love how Una McCormick writes, and I love what she's done with the Garrett character. But part of me also is like, I don't know that I believe that Garrett could end up in a position like this after after this war because he was, you know this exiled person and stuff I, like I, i'm enjoying the stories that she that she's told i've read them all and i think they're fantastic but part of me is like would he actually get into this position i don't know but um i'm really totally looking forward to it any chance to read some more una mccormick when uh and because uh, you know her book the missing was great mm-hmm. you know that that uh and, and uh pulaski's gonna be in this book too right and i love pulaski yeah, definitely. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say they love Pulaski. <laughs> oh, I love Pulaski. You don't follow me enough on Facebook. Me and Zach Moore, we always post Pulaski, and then we do the greater than sign Crusher. Pulaski greater than Crusher. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> we're big Pulaski no, fans. No, I like Pulaski. Um, I don't have any issues with her. I just know a lot of people can't stand her. But I'm looking forward to seeing Pulaski yet again in one of these novels. Uh, as for the cover... You know, it's it's like you said, Dan, it's, you know, Photoshop cover. It's Cardassia Prime in the background and Garrick right there. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, it's a Garrick book. There's nothing that's like, ooh, this is it looks very interesting. It doesn't look all that interesting to me, but at least it tells me it's a Garrick book. It's a Cardassia book and it's Una McCormick. What more can you ask for? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, the... The composition of the cover may not be anything really special to write home about, but yeah, Garrick's on it, and it's like like Brandon, you said, it's got Una McCormick's name on it. I'm I'm there. <laughs> yeah. So. See, the title of the book made me think of like I had heard this was coming out, and I didn't really, and I didn't know which what it was, what type of book it was, and to me, it sounds like you know something that would be like a compilation of stories from that where Benny Russell worked. Mm. You know, like like it sounds like a very '60s sci-fi, you know, anthology series type title. So uh, I I pictured that this is going to be a book of short stories, but now I don't think it will be. Yeah, no. Um, the term Enigma Tales. I can't remember which episode it's from, but it's basically a genre of Cardassian literature. Um, okay. Garrick mentions a few. I think another genre is the repetitive epic. <laughs> yeah, I knew that one. Yeah, yeah. The Never Any Sacrifice. Yeah. yeah, and then Cardassian Enigma Tales was was another one that okay. he brought up at some point, trying to expand okay. Bashir's appreciation for Cardassian literature. There you go. Now we know the mystery behind the title. So that's really cool. This comes out uh, June 27th, and it's $7.99, but it's $10.99 in Canada. So you guys must be getting yeah. extra chapters. Rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> no, our dollars just look bad. Yep. Yeah, but yep, your donuts are good because I had a Tim Horton donut the other day. <laughs> I saw that picture. Yes, I had to send you that. Actually, I had two donuts. I ate one and I saved <laughs> the other one the next day. I, I was trying to pace it out. <laughs> wow. Day-old Tim Horton's donuts. Yeah, it wasn't as good. Great. It wasn't <clears throat> as good as the first day. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we do have one last thing to talk about, and that is issue number seven of Boldly Go. So, yeah, we get a continuation of the adventures of the Kelvin timeline folks. And, uh, yeah, what did you guys think of this one? Uh, So I have one question. This is the very first page of the comic. 
Uh, and first of all, I will say, you know, I, I enjoyed this one. But we see these Starfleet Academy cadets. And mm-hmm. I didn't read the Starfleet Academy comics that came out last year or whenever that was. I have them. I just haven't read them yet. Are these cadets from that comic series? They are yep, indeed. They are. Okay, I thought it's so. Sad. They looked familiar. <laughs> the reference that Kirk says in that panel on the first page, I've heard about you. Let's see, I don't have my glasses on here and it's really small on my computer. I've heard about you all. Your rescue of the USS Slayton made headlines fleet-wide. So that's a direct reference to that that comic book miniseries. Oh, shoot. Sorry, Bruce. Spoiler alert. No, I just assumed that was from that. <laughs> I was like, I think this is it. Maybe I should go and read it real quick. And I just didn't have time. No. No, it's it's pretty cool. It's really neat to have that continuity to see these guys again. And rather than just, I kind of thought they'd just be like, oh, look, they're there in the background. That's cool. But the story actually uses these characters and one in particular to really good effect in the story. So I I thought that was a really interesting tack to take. Yeah, because I thought that that miniseries was just going to be a one-off and I didn't, you know, who would have expected that they would be setting up those characters to use again later on? Mm -hmm. I wonder if these will be characters that'll be in the fourth movie. Huh, there's a thought. That's interesting. I I mean, I, I doubt it, but that's a really cool idea. And, you know, your mouth to Paramount's ears, that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah, that would be cool. Uh, but yeah, I doubt it. But I, or at least have a, you know a cameo or there in the background or something like that. It would be cool to see that in there. But what's cool mm-hmm. also in this issue is Jayla is part of the cadets. So mm-hmm. now we've gone from five of these cadets to six. So Jayla's on the ship. We got more Jayla <laughs> in the comics. I'm so happy. Yeah, she's she's cool to see. She has problems with the uniforms, though, and and kind of a problem that I think a lot of people have had over the years. No pockets. It needs more pockets. It's such. It sounds like her. I heard her voice when that line was written. So like that line was perfect. No, it's it's it it is excellent. One thing I also have to praise this comic on, and I wasn't expecting this, is uh, the writer who I'm assuming I, I didn't look, but I'm assuming it's Mike Johnson. He writes all of these guys, right? Uh, yeah, yep. Mike Johnson and Ryan Parrott. Uh, really good use of some continuity references to stuff from the novel universe. Yeah, the uh, sort of. Yeah, the Andorian mentions Uzave, who is right. the the Andorian god, I guess, or you know, deity. And um, I don't think that's from any of the shows. I think that's only from the lit verse. So that was really cool. It is. But so the one thing that I was a little disappointed with this, and I don't know, maybe that's just me being picky, is I love that they made that reference. However, he calls him my son. Now, I love the idea of the four gendered Andorians from the novels. So maybe when I first saw that, I'm like, oh, they've just destroyed all that canon. And then like the next page, he says Uzave. And I'm like, well, some of it's there. Or are they just saying son to put it in terms that the Federation understands. Well, the way I understood it from the novels was there were two genders that they referred to as he and two genders they referred to as she just with. Yeah, that's kind of. Yeah. So, I mean, I could see son being a, you know, a general one for those two genders. I, I, I don't know. I mean that like it does say it's, it's just translated from Andori. So maybe there are different terms, but in English, we just have, the binary kind of thing going on. 
But yeah, I really appreciated the fact that they put Uzave in there. I thought that was really awesome. Mm-hmm. But doesn't he also mention the his wife or his mother? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so which kind of also implies two, but again, there could be four. Yeah, and that's what I was so. thinking too. I was like, oh, two, it's different from the novels. And I thought, well, maybe he's just referring to the one as opposed to the four. And yeah, I was trying to make that all work too. So Johnson, if you're listening, take that extra step in the next issue and mention four. <laughs> Come on, do it for us. <laughs> it's kind of one of those things that, yeah, if you squint, you can make it work. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I also appreciated is the planet of Babel has been mentioned in many episodes and uh, both in Enterprise and the original series, they're trying to get there and they never quite make it. But we finally get to see it in this story, which is kind of cool. And wow, they kind of went to town on the design here. This is really neat. Yeah, it looks like three-dimensional chess with yeah. buildings on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's crystalline. It looks crystalline to me, this, this like base. Like Krypton. Mm. Oh, yeah. Like the crystal kind buildings of... of Krypton, like from the movies and stuff. It's the yeah, Fortress Krypton-esque. of Solitude. The Fortress of Babel. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, we get this interesting story where the Romulans are here for uh, some sort of peace talks the threat of the Borg that's come out in the last few issues have prompted them getting together and having this summit, but there's still a lot of suspicion on both sides and the ambassador ends up dead. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Did you not think of Nemesis when that happened? Yes, Hmm. I did. I was totally thinking of the scene of Nemesis at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that for sure. I expected him to fall and just crash, you know, shatter Shatter. all (laughs) rock and stuff. But yeah, I thought the exact same thing because it's like it's taking place in like a Senate hall type environment. And then there he's like, does the fall back uh, with the hands up and (sighs) falls. But yeah, I was thinking the exact (laughs) same thing. Yeah. So this story, it is a it is a part one. So it is to be continued at the end. So we won't we won't talk about exactly what happens and and the ending and that kind of thing leave it to the readers and listeners to go check it out themselves but uh yeah i have to say i'm intrigued the plot points they're introducing here and the stuff that's happening i'm really interested to see what's going on and what happens next in this one how about you guys yeah i like the fact that we're actually seeing uh peace conversations happening with the romulans that this whole thing has started because of the borg entering the alpha quadrant and so it really turns things in this timeline and the fact that now that things have changed and that the borg have shown up earlier it's shaking up the galaxy in a different way we may see peace between the federation and the romulans like we've never saw in the Prime universe. I think that would be really interesting. One thing I want to point out, though, as well, is is it does say to be continued. It doesn't say to be concluded. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, the, so this might be more than a two-part story, right? This could be three or four. Yeah, definitely. We're, we're not, I, I haven't found out anyway uh, how many issues this storyline is. But yeah, it could very well be much longer than two parts definitely because the first one was a four-parter with the borg right uh yes that's right yeah right so then the fifth one was a standalone the sixth one was kind of a standalone setting things up going into this one all right well 
if you guys want to get into contact with us and tell us what you thought of the latest issue of Boldly Go or anything else that we talked about here on the show, uh, you can get in contact with us. We've got a form on the website at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail by looking in the sidebar on the show page or going to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. While you're on Facebook, check out the Babel Conference. That's our listeners-only group. Just type the Babel Conference into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. And while you're at the Babel Conference, try not to murder any Romulan ambassadors while you're there. And Bruce, why don't you tell everyone about Goodreads? Well, yes, we have a Goodreads group called Literary Treks, and you can just type in Literary Treks in the search field on Goodreads and find us and then ask to join, and then we'll approve you, and then you're in. And you can see our group discuss Star Trek books. You can also see the bookshelf, which shows you what we've read, what we're currently reading, and what we have coming up. So that way you can read some of these novels before our episodes come out, and you can say, hey, I know exactly what these guys are talking about. Awesome. Well, let's get into some timey-wimey shenanigans with Voyager the Escape. So, as I mentioned before the page flip, we're talking about Voyager the Escape. Now, this is number two in the Voyager series, and of course, number one was the novelization of the pilot episode Caretaker. So, a few weeks ago, we did The Siege from Deep Space Nine and Buy the Book from Enterprise, and it kind of occurred to us that why don't we just continue this and keep doing the first original novel for each series? So that's why we're doing the escape. It might seem like a bit of an odd choice, but there's kind of a bit of logic to our madness. So first of all, how did everyone read this one? Because I don't think this one's available in an ebook. Not. I'm disappointed by that because I didn't have the book. <laughs> it's easy for me to click and boom, there it is. So I have to go uh. and and buy a used book and have it delivered to me. And I'm really disappointed because I thought all the pocketbook Star Trek novels were ebook, but apparently there's still a few out there that are not. Mm-hmm. I knew there were a few uh, back in the day that weren't ebooks, but I thought they had that sorted because there were a few really popular ones. And if I remember correctly, they had some issue with the formatting of the original documents or they were lost or something like that. Uh, Greg Cox's assignment Eternity was one of them which I think is now available as an ebook. But yeah, I thought everything, I thought that had all been cleared up, but sure enough, this one cannot be found. Yeah, it cannot be found. Maybe it will be soon. Uh, I'm hoping that they'll get that all of them done. But um, for some reason, when the novel originally came out, I did not buy it. I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't read it. But of course, I can't keep up with all the novels as much as I wish I could. But it sounds like you guys actually did read it. Yeah, I've got the original the original novel that I picked up at my shopper's drug mart in La Ranche, Saskatchewan, <laughs> back when Voyager first started. So I've had this for 95 to 22 years now I've had this book. Holy smokes, I'm old. Awesome, because I feel like I might have picked mine up at a London Drugs <laughs> way back in the day <laughs> when it first came out, back when you could pick up Star Trek novels in drugstores. And... uh yeah, I, I bought this when it first came out. I think I had gotten it in my head when Voyager first started that I wanted to collect every Voyager novel as it came out and read them all. Um, and I think I collected maybe the first five and I read this one. I don't know that I actually got to any of the other ones, but I do have them on my shelf. Yep. So 
I got to say, looking at this, because we were just talking about Enigma Tales coming out. And what did you say? Enigma Tales was $10.99 Canadian? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, this is a 22-year-old book, and it's $6.99 Canadian tag price on the back, yep. right? Five fifty American, and you said six ninety nine American, right? I mean, like books really haven't changed that much in price over the last quarter century. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something I've been wanting to bring up on the show. And I'm just going to quickly do that. Uh, I would say about fifteen years ago, I was part of a Yahoo uh, Star Trek book club, and I remember when the price, the U.S. price on the paperbacks went from six ninety nine to seven ninety nine, and everybody was complaining about it going up a dollar. <laughs> And I thought, well, it's only a dollar and $7.99 isn't that bad. And a lot of them were saying like, well, I'm on a budget and I, I, I read a lot of books. And so, I mean, it just starts to add up. And I just remember that conversation from 15 years ago. And the price has not gone up since. That's just amazing to me. And there's more pages. The books have gotten thicker, but the prices remain the same. Hmm. Yeah, like this is a pretty short book, you know, mm-hmm. like, like in Canada, most of them are $9.99 now. Right, so ten ninety nine for this uh, for the Enigma Tales that's coming out is is a dollar higher than normal, but uh, most of them have been nine ninety nine for the last few years, even, and that's not that much of a change in twenty two years. Like you say, ten ninety nine, a jump from six ninety nine to ten ninety nine. That seems big, but like you say, that's over a long period of time. This came out in the mid nineties when Voyager premiered, so yeah, that is you know a lot of market stability, really, actually. Awesome. So yeah, uh, like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about uh, The Escape, which is the first original novel in Voyager. And uh, a few weeks down the road, we're going to be talking about Ghost Ship, which is the first TNG novel. That's by Diane Carey. And then we, for the heck of it, we decided to throw on uh, The Entropy Effect from TOS as well. So we'll be talking about that at some point. Well, so the fact that we have the TNG Ghost Ship on the schedule, I kept thinking this book was Ghost Ship every time I would look at it and then go, oh yeah, it's the escape because really this book should be called ghost ship because hmm. it's about these ships and, you know, Neelix refers to them as being haunted and that title would work for this. I think more so than the escape. I think the escape yeah. is a weak title for this. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. In a lot of ways, they really got, they, they kind of predicted a lot of Voyager because we get, Time travel shenanigans, which Voyager does a ton of, and really generic one or two word titles, which Voyager does all the time. So there we go. They're already two for two. So, Yeah, what's Voyager? Voyager was, what, 172 episodes? And I think if you added up every single word in all of the Voyager titles, it would be like 173 words. <laughs> yeah, if you take out thes and ahs for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I never understood why they did that. Why that seemed to continue in the other series a lot too. These just like single words or two word titles. Because if you look at the original series, there's some beautiful titles there that are multiple words, and I think that really mm-hmm. works as opposed to just these one word titles. Yeah, I saw this article. We're going off on a tangent here, but I saw this article once, and it and it it talked about the evolution of the titles or de-evolution basically of the titles over the series. And the one that I remembered the most was they're like, the original series was the city on the edge of forever. And then they're like, I can't remember what, what uh, the next generation of DS9 would have been, but then they're like, by the time you get to Voyager, the name of the episode would have just been city. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly what would have happened. 
<laughs> I think, and, and like you said, a bit of a tangent, but I think for me, the one that really bugs me is the episode with Michael McKean playing the clown. Uh, the thaw. The thaw. Like, really? That's It's such a minuscule fraction of a percentage of what that episode is about. Yeah. Right? Like, the planet I mean, is on this long thaw, yeah. right? You could call it fear <gasps> itself, something to do with fear. Like, oh, there's just, there's so many good titles that episode could have had. And Deep Space Nine, yes. I have to say, really does do well in the, a lot of times in the episode title department. I mean, Treachery, Faith in the Great River. Come on. That's a great title. That's like TOS stuff right there. Okay. Anyway. So I'm, I know we're on this tangent, but I just have to say this because, <laughs> you know, working in the TV industry, I actually schedule on demand content. And sometimes for short descriptions of you're given a very few characters for a title. So by the time Voyager was airing and going into Enterprise, it could have been they wanted to keep the title short because of the, uh, the metadata that they're filling in with the guides online. And so you have to keep those titles short just so it would work. So when people look at for an episode, it the characters actually fit in the field. That's just my prediction. Bruce, I don't want your justifications. I just want to complain about Voyager's <laughs> titles, okay? But that doesn't explain how we went from the motion picture to Nemesis. Hmm. <laughs> awesome. No, we could never explain how we went from the motion picture <laughs> to Nemesis. We could never, ever explain that. Nope. Yeah. If the motion picture no was words. made nowadays, it would be called Motion, and then Star Trek II would have been called The Wrath, and so on and so forth. Star Trek II, Wrath. That's it. <laughs> yeah. No. Star Trek Three Search. <laughs> Uh, and star actually, trek 5 the twos or threes it would just be star trek search and like it was a phrase gun. Search. that's right and star <laughs> trek 5 would have been star trek final and everybody would have agreed with that yes yeah but star trek 4 would have been star trek whales Ooh. <laughs> hey did awesome. we read I mean, a novel everybody already calls it just the one with the whales anyway so that's true <laughs> All right. Well, getting back to the novel, we're purportedly oh, yeah, talking yeah, 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 yeah. about. One of the things I wanted to bring up, because it's kind of a, a starting point for all of these first original novels, is a lot of times the authors are only working with, you know, some character notes, the series Bible, the scripts from the first few episodes. Maybe an episode or two might have aired by the time they're able to put some finishing touches, but generally they don't have a lot of info to go on. How do we feel about how closely they managed to capture the look and the feel of Voyager while you were reading this book? I thought it was spot on. I, I thought the characters sounded like themselves. There was nothing in here that really took me out of the book where I was like, ooh, that doesn't quite sound like this person and it's way off. They sounded really good to me. I it. It, yeah, it really amazes me that so early in the series that we've seen in Voyager and what we just recently saw in The Siege with Deep Space Nine, that these two authors really get the characters right on with so much little information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I felt about most of the characters, I felt that way for sure. And I mean, I think that's a bit of a testament to uh, Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush, uh, you know, how just their talent as writers. Some of the stuff that I really noticed, like the interplay between Tuvok and Paris, I kind of felt like, you know, you're watching Future's End and they're in the 20th, 20th century 
in Los Angeles and kind of that back and forth, they almost had a little bit of that going on on the planet. Like, and I mean, that's just a really good natural extrapolation of, you know, the characteristics of Paris and the characteristics of Tuvok and stuff. And Bolana also, I felt that they captured really, really well. And I'm wondering if maybe that's part of the strength of, uh, some of the characters that are a little bit more, three-dimensional so for example harry kim it's kind of easy to make him sound like harry kim because you know in the at least the first few seasons he's just kind of there doing his thing but bolana who has these more three-dimensional aspects to her I, I feel like she must have been very well fleshed out in the series bible because a lot of the notes they hit are just perfect with her See, I don't know. I didn't I didn't feel like she they got the characters very well in this. Like out of the two that we've read so far, I I think that this one misses the most. You know, I don't know like Neelix I think was a really big miss in this book. I do have to and, say I agree with that. Neelix was yeah, off for sure. Yeah. The doctor as well. Um, you know, I I understand. Like I don't hold it against him they call him Doc Zimmerman in this because, you know, at that time like people thought that's what his name was going to be. But there's only one line that the doctor said that really made me feel like this was an early doctor. And there's a, there was, I can't, I was trying to find it. I was looking through while you were talking here, but I can't find it. But there's a part where Janeway was in, I don't, I don't remember what they called the ready room or whatever it is. And she just, the way that Janeway was talking, it was an early on scene in the book. And it just, it didn't sound like Janeway to me. She didn't sound as in control as she does. Um, like here, this one line here. Tuvok, Janeway said, I need information that might help get our people back. Your fascination with this culture is understandable, but right now I want no sidetracks. Continue, Mr. Kajanders. Like, I don't know, like, there's a few other times in there that it just doesn't feel like Janeway to me. So, I don't know. For me, I think that they kind of missed the characters on this one here. But again, I don't hold it against the book because, again, it is the first one. They didn't have a lot. Like, there's Seska's in here, and there's no indication that these people knew Seska was going to be a Cardassian, right? And I think this even came out after it was revealed that she was a Cardassian, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so it's like they were, again, very early and very limited on the information that they would have been given. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Seska because I was just going to bring up. I felt like she was a little off. And yeah, Neelix was a little off, but I just kept attributing that to the fact that he was just so freaked out about the haunted planet. <laughs> then he was just like, <laughs> and he was so tired that he wasn't getting his nap, so he wasn't being himself. Yeah, that was, to me, Neelix was the only one that I would say was, for me anyway, kind of egregiously off point. I I don't know. There were a few moments like when he goes to take the nap in the ship and some of his offhand comments and stuff. I was just like, uh, it was a little bit too far. And he seemed, I mean, Neelix has always, especially early on, been a little bit annoying and a little bit uh, kind of too quick to make quips and speak his mind. But he came across as kind of stupid in this book. And Neelix isn't stupid. I mean, you know, he's he's not trained like Starfleet and he's not, maybe he has a little bit more of a rough edge about him than, you know, the, the straight and narrow Starfleet folks. But, you know, he's not an idiot. And a couple of times I was just like, oh, Neelix, you're coming across as an idiot here. Yeah, like that scene when they were talking about like the mean time control oh, or whatever yeah. it was. I'm just like, oh my goodness, like this is just brutal. 
Yeah, he's like, mean? That doesn't sound nice. Mean, they're going to be mean. I don't want to be involved with mean people. They're like, no, the mean, the mathematical equation, like the average, the mean. Yeah, you are mean. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> well, and then later on, he brings really up. start so getting your head into a, a twist when that, in that, imagine that Neelix is also listening to this translated into Talaxian. And how weird is that, that mean and mean intellect and yeah and then it was just like okay no i can't start thinking about this because that's too confusing <laughs> this was an alternate timeline that's what it was it's a yeah, different neelix the calvin voyager timeline <laughs> right oh also i did want to bring up regarding seska i think martha hackett didn't even know that seska was gonna turn out to be a bad guy no, she didn't. Before. I actually asked her that at a convention once. Yeah. She's like, she got the script for the episode and was like, oh, I'm a Cardassian. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how they played it. You know, like, oh, this is a good idea. Let's write it in the script. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I can't really blame the authors for, I don't know, not seeing that coming, I guess. <laughs> so the plot of the story starts out with them finding this planet because Neelix says they can get spare parts there. Now Voyager is kind of going through this crisis of the week thing where, you know, they, they need replacement parts to continue at warp. So there's this planet called Alcowell and it's abandoned with a huge shipyard and Neelix tells them that the ships are haunted, but they probably have all the spare parts they need. So what did you guys think about the story at this point, what did you think this story was going to be about? I was so scared. I was like, this is going to be a <laughs> horror story. Now, um, I, at this point when we've got Neelix referring to a haunted planet, I thought, okay, is this going to be some cheesy novel? Uh, I really don't think the planet's going to be haunted, but are they going to play that up a lot? And I will say that I'm glad that they didn't, that it worked out a lot better than I thought. But my first impression was that this might go really cheesy where we might just see, I don't know, ghosts and zombies and who knows what on this planet. Yeah. It's kind of, it started out with me thinking like way back when, when I first read this, like, Oh, we've seen this story before, you know, like the, it's going to turn out to be something other than, than that. But you know, it's not, not everything's going to be what it seems, that kind of thing. But I do have to say, like, once we got into the story, it took several significant turns and really turned into a much different story than I was expecting at this point. Yeah. I've like, yeah. Anytime I read a Star Trek book that talks about anything being haunted, I always go back to a Marvel comic of Star Trek during the motion picture. And this came out that year after the motion picture came out where there was a floating haunted house in space in front of the enterprise. And it's on the cover and it was part of the story. And I don't remember why it was there, but I always think that I'm like, Oh gosh, please tell me it's not a floating haunted house in the middle of space. <laughs> oh man. Was it like a sequel to cat's paw or something? Cause <laughs> boy, that, that's a great episode. Marvel, are you sure it wasn't Gold Key? No, it was Marvel. It was it was because it was right after the motion picture. It took place just you know during that period of time. Yeah, see, I don't know. Like, I didn't I didn't expect it. Like, because they they do say that you know a few times in episodes and stuff like this where it's like, oh, 
you know, I think it's going to be this, and they go down to the planet, and it turns out to not be that. So I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it to turn into a, a haunted story. Like, I've read this, I read this once or twice before this, but I did not remember the book at all, right? But I knew going into it that it wasn't going to be that, not because I remembered, but just because I'm like, well, that's not how Star Trek works. Mm. I mean, I think there's an Enterprise episode that starts out exactly like this with some alien trader, I think played by Tom Bergeron, <laughs> taking the role of Neelix, saying like, oh, you can go salvage parts from this planet, but it's haunted. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, come on. How many times have we seen that story? But yeah, thankfully, that does not turn out to be the case in this book. So instead, what we do end up with is a really kind of interesting time travel story. And the way this planet is set up is apparently they decided very early on that they didn't like traveling in space and, and it was dangerous and they discovered time travel and it became much more popular to travel through time to different eras in the planet's history. And they end up setting up what I think is a really interesting system. I mean, you know, the guys at Department of Temporal Investigations would kind of have their heads explode, but it's kind of cool. They divide their planet's history into 500,000 year chunks and you can travel from one, they call them periods, you can travel from one period to another, but the ultimate crime in this society is traveling within a period. So presumably this circumvents any kind of history altering paradoxes or you know you won't have the opportunity to kill your own grandfather all those kind of tropes like that and of course there are also certain periods that are off limits because they're very crucial periods that you know changing anything would affect you know history or something like that i don't know what did you guys think of this i i remember being really fascinated by this when i was a kid and i got right into it again reading this as an adult it's very well thought out and really cool. What did you guys think? I It took me a moment to really get what was going on with these periods. I was very tired from Star Wars Celebration and I'm trying to read this book and I remember going like, I wait, what? What? Okay, they can travel in periods, but they can't travel in periods. And then I finally got it. I had to kind of reread it. It's like, okay, 500,000 years, you can travel outside of that that's a period 500,000 years that's a period you can travel to other periods but not within the same and I like that because I thought well that makes sense because if you travel so far back in time probably you're probably not going to do anything that's going to disrupt the timeline but if you go back within the last several thousand years it could change things within your existing timeline so to push yourself further and further away, you can now live on your same planet, but instead of traveling to a different planet to colonize, you're colonizing your own planet, but just in a different period of time. And I just really thought that was interesting. I, I like that. I thought it was pretty cool that they could travel between these periods and not disrupt the timeline. Yeah, I thought it was interesting as well. Like, I had just finished reading Time Lock. That was the last thing that I read before this, right? So I, I really was thinking a lot of the DTI books by Christopher L. Bennett. And a lot of the, the wording that they used in this seemed like wording that Christopher L. Bennett would have done, like these periods 
these time alarms and things like that. So I, I was really enjoying it, and I thought it was a pretty cool concept. Do you guys think that that idea works? Like, do you think that, like, if you really thought about it, does no. that safeguard against? <laughs> Not at all. Like, you, you could go yeah, back in time right? 500,000 years and still <laughs> mess up something so badly. But, you know, how they explained it in the end, like, I don't know if this, like, should I talk about the the splitting? Okay, so, the oh, I, yeah, like, yeah. I don't know how much you want to ruin it. Okay. We're spoiling the crap. So out of this book. the way they talked about how even questioning if you could do something was a crime, because if you answered yes, it would create one timeline, and if you answered no, it would create another timeline was interesting. And they talked about how, you know, time flows like a river, and most most divergence that create parallel dimensions are like water around a rock and they'll end up flowing to the same spot doesn't affect anything but the fact that you could ask a question and just asking this question about time travel was a crime punishable by death was pretty fascinating because even just questioning time itself could be disastrous so if, if you're that concerned about it then traveling at any time could mess everything up so badly and you know basically the final explanation is that there's just multiple timelines going on because of parallel dimensions and stuff but you know yeah i i see that started to get interesting too because now that whole concept of the different dimensions and you're creating new timelines just by asking right. the question Mm -hmm. And so that they're able to travel between the different dimensions and times to find a place that's safe yeah. to be in. Yeah, that was really, really fascinating to me. And I loved how, you know, they travel back in time. So what, what happens, of course, is our heroes stumble into one of these ships and it happens to be one that works. And so Torres and Elix and, and Harry Kim travel back in time. Was it 300,000 years, something like that? So it's within the same period and of course are immediately discovered and sentenced to death basically because you can't do that. And I really loved when they're walking around and, and they, they're saying things that they think are completely innocuous and they're like, well, we just found these abandoned shit. And the people are like, no, no, shh, shh. like you can't say that that's within our period. You can't tell people what's going to happen because, you know, what happened to make those ships abandoned? You know, what what's going on? You know, so I thought that was really interesting, too, is we don't really find out why that is uh, mm -hmm. until much later in the book. But, you know, so I'm imagining there's some sort of calamity, maybe some sort of natural disaster is going to kill everybody off in, you know, just a very short time. And so mean time control can't divulge that information because the foreknowledge would and because they're really mean people do all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, they're just mean, you know. <sighs> but yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And, it, you know, all the little aspects of that kind of thinking like, what what little tiny innocuous things could you do or say if you go back in time that might just completely shatter everything? And, you know, it, it makes sense. Like, it seems almost ridiculous that they have all these really crazy rules that it just you know, everything is so tightly controlled, but then you think about it and it's like, well, you'd have to because the tiniest thing could disrupt everything. They question the fact that they're being sentenced to death for traveling back in time within a period. And of course, even though it's an accident, 
the society here says, you know, this is a very serious crime. Punishment is death. And I think it was mm-hmm. Balana that was saying, like, well, you know, what? This is worse than murder. And they're like, yes, this is worse than mur- murder because whatever you change in this timeline, whatever could happen could create more death. It could create, there could be a war that somehow happens or whatever. I mean, we don't know the effect of this. So millions of lives are at stake here and that's as worse. It's worse than murder because it's multiple lives. You may kill one person, but this could affect millions of people and they could all die because of something you did to change the timeline. It's one of those things. And and like from the perspective of the characters that, you know, uh, Torres, Kim and Neelix, it feels very arbitrary, you know, like, well, we didn't know we're sorry, you know, but the punishment isn't a punishment on them because they did something wrong. It's to prevent the destruction of their society, just like you say. So, you know, as you read the story, you know, it still seems really harsh and, and really kind of you know, too far, but you understand where they're coming from. You know, that it's a, it's a very real fear. We we're talking about like all these rules that govern them and, and, you know, the control that, that, that meantime control, interestingly, two novels in a row that, you know, the big baddie is control, I guess, but, uh, the inflexible bureaucracy of the meantime control, I thought was very familiar Speaking as someone who has recently had to call my telephone provider, TELUS, <laughs> and the hoops that you have to jump through to to deal. And, and I was talking to them Brandon yesterday you know exactly and I wanted to like about. rip out my eyeballs and I was just on the telephone. Based on stuff that I see online, Bruce, uh, I think I can replace TELUS with Comcast. And I think you might understand what we're talking about. Uh, I have no comment. They're they're probably listening to us right Hashtag now. Hashtag not a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using Comcast Internet as we speak. Oh crap! Hashtag not a sponsor. Hashtag, Dan, get um, that anyway. foot out of your mouth. <laughs> Sorry, I I mean I don't know. I'm Canadian. Whatever. Um, I'm not on Telus Internet, so you know, screw those guys. But. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, the bureaucracy I found was really interesting, like this kind of banging your head against a wall, dealing with an inflexible, monolithic group or organization or governmental agency or whatever. I found this all really familiar and especially how they spoke to Kim and Torres and all of them, and then how they spoke amongst themselves. I, there's this really interesting here thing here where I think the authors really captured that really well. And it, and it felt very familiar. What did you guys think of that? Well, part of what I liked about the bureaucracy, like I think it added a really awesome layer to the story because, because of their rigidity, it added this really cool trope of them not being able to escape you know, and these time alarms and how they cause these four time alarms. And they're like, the nobody's ever created four time alarms in the history of anything. You know, like we know how good our Starfleet crews are. And we know that they can get out of any situation whatsoever. And the fact that they like go to go through a door and there's the security team and they're like, 
why are you guys here? And it's like, well, because you escaped and killed four of us. So we had to go back in time 15 minutes to prevent that from happening. You know, I thought that was a really unique and interesting plot line for it. Like for, for the book, I thought that was really awesome. Well, and I love how they're talking to our characters and they're like, you know, this is so serious. You're, you're going to be put to death. You know, you've done this, this, and this. And then they talk amongst themselves and they're like, man, Four time alarms. I have to do a ton of paperwork here. So anyway, how did that other case go? Oh, yeah, that's cool. I just, I, I love that because it's kind of this little peek behind the curtain of this inner working and just how they dealt with the people around them. I thought the the voices were perfect. It felt very real. It felt every day. Like this is their everyday job. And it's like, oh, well, now we got another one of those. Oh, this one's actually bigger than most. Oh, it just means more paperwork. I guess I'll be working late tonight. I'll going to call home and tell him I'll be home, you know, go ahead and have dinner without me. Um, but at the same time, I guess one thing that bothered me a little bit about this book is that when our crew goes back in time and they've created this big violation, I kept thinking, well, why, do, why don't the people of this planet, this control, go do the back time and just prevent them from ever coming back or is it because it created a new timeline and even though if you correct something that timeline's created i I don't know i just kept they kept correcting things through back time going back like 15 minutes to fix things i couldn't figure out why they wouldn't fix the fact that just went back in time i kept expecting that to be the final resolution just go back and prevent balana from going back in time reset button you know but you know so i'm glad it kind of didn't end up being that yeah, and I think there there's kind of they kind of do a little bit of a hand wavy explanation that, you know, it would there's too much of a risk of of creating like time loops and some sort of weird, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff could happen. So no, we can't do that kind of thing. But yeah, I'm really glad they didn't take that route. You know, I love the two parter year of hell, but that ending just kills me <laughs> that they just undid it all, you know, and I hate when a book or a story ends like that because, you know, while I did enjoy it and, you know, had fun reading it, it still feels like, well, they just erased it and never right. happened and it doesn't matter. Okay, but Ugh. but once an action has taken place, it does create another timeline. I mean, that's one thing that was mentioned right. in this book, that other mm-hmm. timelines, dimensions. So if they're going back and fixing it through this back time, then that doesn't really fix there's still that timeline that was created you're just creating another timeline and correcting it the direction you want to go in wouldn't that be the case that's a 400 violation for just even (laughs) asking the question (laughs) i've just created like several timelines time alarm time alarm we got to go back and prevent bruce from asking that question I'm going to get killed now. I'm but executed. I'll talk to them about it. I'll try and, yeah, you know, no. I'll talk to them. It won't help. You're still going to be dead, but I'll talk to them. <laughs> but at the same time, they did say it was like, you know, water flowing. And Brandon, you kind of mentioned that earlier, but that you can create two timelines. It's like water kind of breaks apart, but then comes together. So maybe it's once they fix a timeline that close, it really is just merging the two splits right, back right, into right. That's one. That's what I got. Mm-hmm. because it didn't yeah it didn't create all these other ripples whereas and i think i i remember the explanation being like if they undid that then you know that guy wouldn't have traveled back in time and then this wouldn't have happened and, and it would have just been like too many ripples or something like that because they caught it too late or something but what does too late even mean when you're talking about time travel like 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I it's, don't know. It's kind this of... is all making me hungry. Time travel gives me a headache. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that what Janeway said? <laughs> it makes me hungry, though. I mean, yeah. it makes... Janeway gets headaches. I get hungry from time travel talk. Awesome. Well, we do have this other plot line, this... And I... I Kajanders? Is that how we're saying his name? Yes. Or is it just Janders, Silent K? I'm I like sure. I like Kajanders. Like Kajanders. <laughs> makes me think of like Mr. Bojangles. Exactly. Or <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> but yeah, so this guy, Kajanders, is uh, looking for adventure and he commits this same crime. So he sees the crew from Voyager's ship appear and he decides he's going to jump in that ship and travel forward in time to where the where Voyager is and, you know, steal a planet hopper ship. And that's what they call people who travel through space or planet hoppers. So he gets found by Voyager and kind of tells them about meantime control and what will likely happen to their crew and that kind of thing. But he's planning to steal the ship. Now, what I find interesting is he knowingly commits these violations and he isn't put to death. Instead, he's hired by Control to be one of their agents. What did you guys think of, of this character, Kajanders, and his role in this story? That's messed up. What you just said is so messed up because that's why I kept <laughs> thinking. It's like he's violated all these things and he's, well, we'll just make him a member of Control. But our crew accidentally does something and, oh, we're going to sentence them to death. Yep. <laughs> I, I didn't like Kajanders. <laughs> so just because you said that, I just brought it up here. So I have to do it here. So... I knew a man could janders and he'd time travel for you in, in really big shoes with really big hair and a ragged shirt. I don't know. I can't even go any further. <laughs> I brought up the lyrics for Bojangles wow. and it's like, I don't know. <laughs> so, sorry. Oh, that's excellent. I can't sing. No. That's mad. I do Joe. have to say like, <laughs> yeah, no, no one. Cause they're really, shoes. really big. Um, Cause Matt doesn't do a lot of walking. Yeah. And, <laughs> so the thing with Kajanders, and I, I thought this was, I, I actually kind of liked the resolution to his story. And again, it kind of goes back to like, you've got the public face of this bureaucracy that you come up against and you can't, you know, break through it and you can't do anything, but you've got these shady kind of backroom deals that are going on with these agents. And it turns out all the agents are just, I guess, former people that broke the law and they're like, oh, you're really good at this. You should you're hired, I guess. But they created so much. I mean, we talked about the severity of changing things and going back in time, yet these guys get a pass because, oh, look how Do you want to die or do you want to work for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they should have offered I mean, that to Balana and, you know, to Kim and to Neil. But then they wouldn't have know? gone home and then we wouldn't yeah. have had Star Trek Voyager. And I, I had a tough time with this part of it, like the <laughs> Kajander's character and the other guy. Like when he was telling the, when the story was from kind of his point of view, like I really, my mind drifted and I really had a tough time following that plot line of the book. And I thought it was kind of boring, but you know, so uh, this book wasn't very long. It took me four days to read this book. Like I, I, I did have a tough time going through this book and a lot of it was, was this part of the book. I think like the, the being on Voyager was fine for me. Being in the past was fine for me, but this part of it really stalled me. I don't know. I, I, I guess because it shows like the, the kind of difference between those two, I like the idea that all these agents are just kind of maverick type people. And it's just a, I don't know, kind of a juxtaposition to control. And 
the admiration that they ended up having for the Voyager crew, I thought was cool too. Like, it's like, wow, your guys caused four time alarms, man. They are good. <laughs> you know, I thought that was kind of fun, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess, uh, the other thing that was interesting and I, Bruce, I see you added it to the outline here, the shoes, which we did start to talk a bit, little bit about there. Um, the shoes as, status symbols that was kind of an interesting one what are your what were your thoughts on that I, I thought it was a little strange like you know that so with them being a status symbol and they say quote the less you have to walk the more the more ornate your shoes can be so like throughout the book they kept talking about oh look at that person's shoes and how big they are or like how shiny or whatever and i just thought it was a little strange but that's cool because that's that's what you want in star trek you want you want some strange things that are unusual from what our own society does although you know i'm kind of thinking like some of those high heels that i've seen in real life i I don't know if we're that far off from that actually the richer you are with these ridiculously huge heels i don't know I thought maybe there was something there. The the shoes never felt comfortable to me when I read this. I mean, every time they describe shoes, I thought, gosh, that sounds so uncomfortable. <laughs> I think maybe it was just a conspiracy by uh, the orthopedic surgeons of Alcowell to kind of drive ankle sprains up or something, because <laughs> that's all I thought of was like all these people walking around control and just rolling their ankles all the time. <laughs> Foot injuries are not covered by your medical plan. <laughs> we will not back time to prevent your ankle injuries. <laughs> See, I, I'm not a big shoe person. You know, I know people like you know, I work with some women at work. They're just always talking about shoes. Oh, my gosh. It's either shoes or bags. They're always talking about <laughs> shoes and bags. And it's like I'm not in any of those until I went to Lucasfilm and got my own bag. And I went to work. Look at my bag. It says Lucasfilm. <laughs> Ooh. Well, I guess uh, kind of wrapping up, what did what are your guys' final thoughts and maybe a rating for The Escape? Um, I, th- I thought it was okay. It's out of these early books that we've been reading. It's been my least favorite so far, I think. Um, I'm really glad that we're going back and doing them. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, it's not my favorite Voyager book by far. And, you know, I think they, they like I said earlier, they missed they missed a few characters, in my opinion. Um, but I would say out of five, I'd probably give this, you know, two and a half time alarms. Nice. Bruce, what are your thoughts? I enjoyed the novel. It wasn't great, but it was a quick read. It wasn't real long. Uh, I thought the characters were pretty spot on, except for a few things here or there. I found the story about the period and the time stuff a little confusing at first, but once I started to wake up and reread it, I kind of liked the idea. Um, and then, oh, we didn't even talk about the haunted ship. So this, the one agent was basically, you know, raising the ships with uh, these discs and stuff to scare people away so that they don't mess with the ships and travel back in time. So that kind of explained all that. Um, and then to, to Janders was not a big, it wasn't that I didn't like his character. It's just, I, it just didn't do anything for me. It's like, it just kind of fell flat at the end when they're like, Oh, we'll just make him part of control. And I thought, I was like, really? Like that just seems like a cop out. Like, Oh, we didn't know what to do with him, So we'll just put him with control and that will be the end of his story. So I thought that was a little weird. So I would say out of 
five high top shoes, I give this three and a half pair. Whatever that means. (laughs) Nice. So seven (laughs) shoes. Also, seven out of ten shoes. Seven out of 20, that would be. Okay, so, yeah. Seven out of ten? Yeah, okay, seven out of ten. You're right, yeah, yeah. It's late. (laughs) Oof. All right. (laughs) So, yeah, no, I... And I don't know if this is me kind of looking back through rose-colored glasses or something, but I remember really enjoying this, uh, reading this as a kid. And reading it again now, I really enjoyed this as well. I love time travel paradoxy type stuff if it's done well. And I thought this society was set up really interestingly. I, I love that how much thought went into the society and, and how that all worked. So I really got into that with this book. You know, it's kind of some of the 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 micro stuff going on with the various characters and that kind of thing. It was kind of interesting too, but for me it was really the exploration of this civilization and how it all worked and how you can build a story around that that I found really fascinating. So yeah, I have to give this, I think. Oh, and I also have to say the one moment you talked about Bruce, where he's raising the ships and stuff. I remember specifically when he's looking over at the pointed eared one, as he called him, and he's looking at a tricorder and looking up and looking down and then pointing at a ship. And all I was thinking at that point is, Oh buddy, you're screwed. (laughs) (laughs) So little things like that, that, you know, made me laugh or smile during the book, you know, interesting moments. These authors are always good at, at crafting fun little bits. And like I said, the world building is a lot of fun. So I got to give this one somewhere around three and a half to four anti-grav units that are lifting ships that Tuvok turns off with a tricorder. Well, that was a really good discussion and I enjoyed the book. I don't think there was any point where I really wanted to do any back time and go back and correct anything that we said. I think we'll keep it. Well, yeah, that's because you don't remember the first conversation we had. There was a first or the second or third. Exactly. What? What? Wait, you guys have been going back and starting over and I don't remember because you changed the time. Uh, Yeah, just the once. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I only remember one. (laughs) Well, confusing paradoxes and backtiming over messed up podcasts aren't the only thing we've been talking about. So here's a look at some of the other things we've been talking about on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. That's not to take away anything that they are. They have the same standard of excellence. Um, They are as brilliant, as smart. Um, They're good leaders. But they're guys who go home, they're guys who drink, they're guys who go to the bar, they're guys who get in fistfights, they're you know, guys who have wives and argue, and they're guys who deal with loss. To the journey! I've just got this vision now of Janeway there. Who's a good voyager? Who's a good girl? Well, she liked to, you know, stroke stroke the halls and everything. So Tom Paris would be like, who's a good girl? You want to go, want to go for a ride? Let's yeah. go. <laughs> Literary Treks. I'm glad we reread this because at the time I did read this, it was when the new movie was out. But now that we've had the three movies, as you just mentioned, and I've seen Star Trek 09 about a hundred times, I'm very familiar with the movie and not as much as with the comic now because I've only read it maybe a few, a couple of times. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of those shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. 
You can, of course, find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are an Apple user, please be sure to hit that subscribe button. It helps us out a lot and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search in iTunes. And of course, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you is to support the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find all of our current goals and different milestone contribution levels, along with all of the great perks we have for you. These perks can include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. So for example, if you remember our last episode, we talked to David Mack. In the Patreon zone, we do have an extended interview with him that you can find there. We would really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll, you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We would like to thank our associate producers, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and of course, the wonderful Brandon Shamutala. I've got to say that because he's here, for the support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers specifically for Literary Treks. You do need to say that when he's here, because when he's not here, he sure doesn't do. <gasps> I'm four bum, episodes bum, behind bum. because I, I'm <laughs> behind on my voice, but otherwise I've listened to them all. I, I've got to listen to the Section Aww. 31. I've got to listen to the third one in the Prey trilogy, the last Dayton Ward one, Headlong Flight, and then Control. So those are the four. I'm four episodes that I haven't listened to yet. Ooh, I those are sure. really good ones. Oh, oh and they, maybe it's five. Uh, did I say the David R. George one, the new DS9 one? Yeah, anyways, so maybe it's five, Not but sure. four or five anyways, but... Oh. I'm well, so that's jealous. We love you, Brandon. I'm so <laughs> jealous. You have so much to listen to. Well, Brandon, when you're not getting caught up on the back catalog of literary treks episodes you haven't listened to yet, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me via emergency override interperiod communications drickle through Nogi, citing Watchman regulations 500 through 537, all sections. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Brandon Matella. You can find me every once in a while on the Babel Conference, sticking my head up, talking, and uh, telling everybody how much I love Pulaski. Uh, you can find me with new episodes of Melodic Treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek. And you can find me on Warp 5, co-hosting with Floyd, uh, which is all about Star Trek Enterprise. And even if you don't like Enterprise, check the show out because we're doing some great stuff. We've had some really great interviews over the last couple of months. Check it out. You're doing yourself a disservice if you don't. And Bruce, where can people find you when you're not uh, drinking all the different kinds of coffee that they've got on board Voyager? Mmm, coffee. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me talking Star Wars, especially Star Wars Celebration. You can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about that. And uh, most recently, I was on Earl Grey, episode 174, where we were talking about the game. Yes, Robin Leffler and her little laws and Wesley saving the ship and all that stuff. And Troy's eating her chocolate. It's, it's great. It's wonderful. Check it out. Listen to it. And if I'm, you're not doing all that and hearing me there, you can just go to the Babel Conference because I'm always hanging out there. So, Dan... When you're not trying on all of those vibrant shoes that you like to wear, where can people find you? Well, you can find me in the emergency room with a rolled ankle because I'm never doing that again. 
Uh, but when I'm not there, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, talking about Star Trek. You guessed it. And you can find me on Facebook.com slash Productions, And of course, hanging out in the Babel Conference, asking about time travel. You know what they say about Dan when he's got his real big shoes on, hey? They say, that looks funny. <laughs> he doesn't walk much. Indeed they do. (laughs) Well, on that note, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.